Father's Day. If, uh, if you were expecting a Father's Day sermon this morning, it's probably because you're rel- relatively new around here. Um, it's not that we're either for or against that sort of thing. We just typically don't do that. We'll uh, preach straight through books of Scripture, and then every now and then we'll take a break to, uh, to do something a little bit different, but this morning's just not one of those days. So we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 if you kind of want to get ready. In the meantime, I want to tell you, and you know, just to pay homage to Father's Day so that I can say that I did something to that regard, I want to tell you a cheesy Father's Day joke. Um, this is great. Okay, I saw this on CNN this morning. I know, boo, hiss, CNN. Um, here's, uh, here it is. Why should you never play poker on the African savanna? Because it's too many cheetahs, son. <laughs> My kids will love that. And so now that you've lost all respect for me whatsoever, um, we'll, we'll go ahead and start. Um, okay, so we've been working through 1 Corinthians, and um, we have gotten up to chapter 4 and got a few verses into chapter 4. We'll pick up here in a second in verse 6, but... Um, I, I want to review real fast as who the Corinthian people are so that we can understand um, what exactly is going on in this text. Um, Corinth at that time was a socioeconomically diverse and very happening seaport. And so that kind of situation was different and not all that common in the ancient world. You had people who were certainly royalty and you had people who were poor, um, destitute, but you actually had some people who were kind of in the middle. It wouldn't be like a strong middle class, nothing like what we have today, but you did have some people who had the ability to change their situation. There was some room for some people to be able to climb a social ladder. Um, And so it looks like the church in Corinth has um, a good sampling of people from all um, aspects or all parts of that society. And um, the the ESV study Bible says this, that Corinth was a destination for traveling professional orators who charged a fee for attendance to their entertaining rhetorical displays and advised people on how to advance socially. So therefore, Apollos, who is a guy that we've already heard about um, somewhat already, and he's well known to be a very powerful Christian um, defender of the faith, um, he would have been highly admired by the Corinthians for his ability um, to speak publicly. Acts 18 describes him as an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. In other words, he was well-spoken and he was very convincing, and everyone, we, we would have all liked the, his podcast. But here's the crux of the issue, I think, for the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. Some people in the church really liked Apollos, not because he was a faithful servant of God, but instead because if you listened to him, he could make you feel smart. And in Greek culture, being smart, or more precisely, like being wise, having wisdom, was highly valued. I want you to think about Socrates and Plato and all the students underneath them that would come along and they would be thinking and speaking publicly about wisdom, all right? We're not far from Greece here. Um, As a culture, they just loved wisdom. In fact, having wisdom was a way to imagine yourself to be a king. And so to help you see this, I want you to to think about um, the Dos Equis guy, right? The most interesting man in the world. All right, so um, remember he, he would say, um, I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer Dos Equis. 
And he would sit there and he was always in complete control, right? He had every mental, social, physical ability that you could possibly want. And here's the thing. If you chose Dos Equis to drink, then the implication was that you could be the most interesting man in the world. Making that choice for your beer made you him. And so you could sit back in your own imagination, enjoy Dos Equis, and you could be the most interesting man in the world because who wouldn't want to be him? This was what it was for the people of Corinth. If you had wisdom, it made you a king, if only in your own imagination. And remember, if you had wisdom because there was some social mobility opportunity, it could also make you able to climb the ladder a little bit, or at least they thought so because they would pay people to tell them how to do it, right? It'd be a little bit like um, our self-help teachers or our positive encouragement teachers that would come and, and travel the country telling everyone how they can make their lives better. So remember what Paul says about the Corinthian church. Jeremy did this for us um, when he was talking about chapter one. Paul says that there were not many wise, powerful, or noble among you. In other words, they weren't all that impressive and there was room for them to be able to climb the ladder. And they wanted to. So here's what happened. Before the gospel comes to them, they're nobodies. But then the gospel comes to them, and they have the opportunity now to be somebody in the church. And so they began to be prideful. They began to think, oh, man, I've got this position now. I can identify wisdom whenever I see it because I understand that Apollos, he's a great teacher. And if I cling to him and say that I'm of Apollos, it makes me clearly the one who can understand wisdom. And so now I'm a king because I'm a good Greek. They would also, um, they, they would also cl lay claim to Paul, um, who's writing this letter. They would lay claim uh, to Peter as well. And it turns out they would lay claim to, to others that, that Paul doesn't mention. But it was just in their blood. They wanted to make themselves look wise, that they could be accepted in the church and by the culture. And so this is why when Paul talks to them and gives them the gospel initially, um, he preaches to them in this way. This is from chapter one also. I came to you without words of eloquent wisdom. He doesn't want to appeal to their Greekness or to anything in them that wants to attain this philosophical high-mindedness. In chapter two, verse one, Paul says this. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So he went to them on purpose, and he taught in such a way that he would have been boring and unimpressive. He, did, he went to them in weakness and in trembling, and the reason why he did that is because he wanted to leave room for the Spirit to work. He didn't want to tickle their ears. And they, they believed. Like the Spirit worked. The Spirit moved in their hearts with the truth of the gospel, and they embraced it. But the temptation to value eloquence was still owning them as a church body. They're still Greek, right? They haven't been fully supplanted from the world. And so by the time we get to the beginning of chapter four, Paul has rebuked the Corinthian church because this kind of fleshly thinking, this valuing one man over another, it was causing division. 
Um, it turns out everybody's got their guy. You know, I'm, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. I'm of Paul. Um, and they would argue about it. And it's kind of like um, basketball fans arguing about who the greatest is, whether it's LeBron or MJ. Everyone knows it's MJ. Um, but people get mad about this kind of thing, right? They actually, they'll get heated over it talking about this. Be- and, and here's why. Because if you don't win the argument, then you're unable to see that which is plain. My guy is plainly the best ever. So really what you're doing is you're arguing your own ability to see what is plain. So um, obviously Paul doesn't like this kind of bickering in the church. And he understands um, that himself and Apollos and Peter, that all of these teachers and whoever else is a Christian teacher, that the reason why they're teaching in the first place is because God has given them to the church to be a help, to be a teacher, to be a servant, to be a steward of the gospel. And so, you know, there's an, there's an irony here because they're arguing about that which is plain. Apollos is clearly the best teacher. No, Paul is clearly the best. No, Peter is clearly the best. But that which is plain is that these guys are servants of God. And it's God who's actually doing the growth in their hearts, not the wisdom of these men. All right, so that's an unusually long introduction for the text that we're about to read. Um, But I feel like we had to do that so that we could understand how Paul is approaching them in chapter 4. So we're going to pick up in verse 6. And if you've got your Bible ready, then you can read along with me. And we'll go all the way to the end of the chapter. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What did you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but of their power." For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Unfortunately, God's people today have not matured out of this desire to elevate men and women above servanthood. Mary Grace and I, when we lived in Frisco, um, we attended a church um, called Frisco Bible Church. Great church body. 
And um, Wayne Broderick, as far as I know, is still the pastor there. And he's a really gifted teacher. Um, he's got this really cool way of using PowerPoints. And you're thinking, oh gosh, PowerPoints are boring. But it's really not. Like he does this awesome presentation where he can talk and use the text behind him. And they, they weave together wonderfully. And a lot of people go to see him teach. It's very, it's just different. And he's really good at it. I've never seen anyone else teach like him. But he's, man, he's good. And, but here's what they would do. Whenever he was going to be out of town, they, um, they wouldn't let anyone know, like the, like the staff knew. But outside of that, they never broadcasted it. They never told him publicly because they knew if they did, a lot of people would not show up. And so here's what that reveals in us. It reveals that um, sometimes we don't value what God is saying through the person. We don't value the Spirit's work. Instead, what we value is someone tickling our ears. We like their eloquence or their ability to present information as opposed to looking for what it is that God might be saying to our hearts. And so I think another example of this is, is probably with, um, you see this a lot with like female Christian writers and speakers. Um, and, and so if you've been around church for very long, you can probably think of, you know, like a certain lady who's really gifted in, in teaching and really good at what she does and the Spirit's obviously working. But what ends up happening is they end up having like groupies, kind of. And so wherever they go, people are like like swarming and, and going around them. And, you know, I'm not saying like if someone's obviously gifted and the Lord is working through them to show sin in your life and the Lord's working through them to like help you know Jesus and adore him better, like listen to them. I'm not saying don't listen to gifted teachers, but what I am saying is you have to check your own heart for a minute and think, what is it that I'm listening to this person for? Is it because I just really like the way they talk? Or is it because there's something of substance from the scriptures that's affecting my life? Obviously, there's a lot of dangers with being like a groupie of a person. Um, but um, here's the thing. For someone to carry the weight of all that attention, and so you've got this gifted teacher who's traveling around, crowds are coming to hear them speak, there's a lot of buzz about their books, they're selling lots of books. For someone to carry the weight of that and remain just clung to the truth, that's really hard to do. And so we have to be careful because if we find ourselves going after a specific teacher or a specific preacher or a specific writer, then if, if they by chance, God forbid, go off the deep end, are we gonna go with them because we're blinded? We haven't been listening for the truth in the first place. And so by all means, continue to listen, do podcasts to gifted teachers, but you have to be careful and filter everything they say against God's word. And any good teacher who's worth their salt will say that, and you hear many of them do. They say, look, if I ever say anything not in line with the scriptures, you need to run. And I love to hear that because it's someone recognizing their own humanity. So, um, one, more, one more thing about, about that. Um, it also means this. It also means that you don't have to be a super eloquent, well-spoken speaker to share the gospel and be effective. You don't even have to be the person on stage. And so don't expect that just because maybe you fumble over your words a little bit that God can't use you. And so if you've got friends, and you do, that don't know Jesus, and the opportunity is right for you to begin to explain to them what Christ has done for you, do not give yourself the excuse that you're not good at sharing it. Share it because sincerity matters. And if the Spirit is working, remember, 
God has to be the one who works anyway. If the Spirit is working, that is what will be most effective. All right, so um, moving on, verse 7. Paul asks the Corinthians three questions. He says, he says this. He says, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Remember, um, the, the Corinthians were nobodies, and they became somebodies in the church. Where we already know that they've um, been under great teaching, but um, what we haven't said is that Paul's already told them that they have enriched, they have been enriched in all speech and all knowledge, and they're not lacking in any spiritual gift. God has legitimately blessed them. They were nobodies, and God has given them gifts to be able to be a part of the church and equip one another to grow up in Christ. They have legitimate abilities, but what he's saying is, don't forget that those gifts have been given to you from me. The Lord has given you those things. Do not forget that. And so for us, I think here's the warning, that God is the source of everything good that's happening here at Redeemer. Um, on a personal level, as we begin to like dive into the scriptures and we begin to learn and grow about what God's word is really saying, um, as we begin to grow in our prayer life, as we begin to grow in our ability to be able to engage our community and um, host others and, and be the kind of person who, who wants to serve, look, you can be prideful about anything. I know that because that's me. Like if, if I was asked to get all the gum off of every single chair that was hiding underneath, I would find a way to be prideful about that. I would, I would go and I would find the gum and I would get it out. And as my hands were getting nasty, I would say, oh my gosh, Paul, you are amazing because no one else would do this. You are the only person who would have the kind of wonderful heart to come in here on your time and take gum off this. I would do that. I would say that. And you know what I'm talking about because that's who we are. Anytime we start to grow and make ourselves useful for the church, there is a temptation to start to think, I'm pretty great. And it doesn't matter what your role is, whether you're up front or whether you're serving behind the scenes, there is a temptation to forget that God is the one who has given this place to us. He is the one who has given one another to us. He is the one who has given whatever vision we have for our community. It was not some man's daydream. He is the one who has laid out in his word how church ministry might work and how it's to be organized. So if we do things differently than other people, it's not because we're awesome or because we have these novel ideas. It's either because we're obedient or because God spoke in some way to lead us. And he did that for us. And so there's this temptation for us, you know, to maybe be high and mighty and, and contrast ourselves against other churches. But look, here's, here's the thing. Redeemer is a great church. I love this place. It's healthy. It's the healthiest church I've ever been a part of. But I was saved in a church that wasn't. The church that I was saved in had a plethora of issues, but God still used it. And so there are plenty of churches around town that have their, their issues, and Lord knows we have ours, and God's still working. It doesn't mean that everything that they're doing is outside of God's will and is not useful. And so I think that helps us to maintain unity in our community if we'll just remember, and this is what Paul is saying, please remember that everything that you have is a gift from me. And that will free us up and it'll allow us to be able just to be here and to be able to love one another because we've been loved by God. He's brought us here so we can freely love one another. <clears throat> Uh, 
All right, let's, uh, before I move on to the next section, I just, I want to say a, a word that's kind of blunt to set the tone here because Paul gets really nasty here. Um, the Christian life is not a means to gain notoriety in the world's eyes or ease. In fact, it may do the exact opposite. And um, remember, the, the, the Corinthians had adopted this cultural way of thinking. It said this. It said, if you're wise, you've arrived, and now you're a king. But Paul says in verse 8, already you have all you want. And you can just hear the sarcasm dripping off of this. Already you have become rich. Without us, meaning the apostles, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. So, they haven't become kings. They're not all that impressive. They just think that they are. And Paul was pointing that out. And um, here's the other thing, that, it, that, that we are meant as Christians to engage in some kind of future reign with Christ. When he takes his reign over the world, Christians are to, to rule with him. But they're on the wrong path to do that. And the reason why is because they don't have any desire to suffer like Paul did and like Jesus did. So um, I want you to think back to uh, when Jesus was tempted by the devil after his baptism before he starts his ministry. The third temptation was this. Um, The devil says, bow down and worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth to rule over. All right, so spoiler alert here. Those things are already going to be given to Jesus, right? He's already entitled to all of those things. But here's what the devil was doing. He's saying this, you can have all the rule and authority right now, but without suffering. You can have everything that's rightfully yours, and you know that it's yours. You know it belongs to you, but you can have it without the cross. And praise God that Jesus said no. Um, Because if he hadn't, there would have been no um, forgiveness for sin. And so um, we have to remember that the Bible says that we are rotten to the core, that there's not anything good in us, and that we are opposed to God. And so we need a perfect life so that God can give us forgiveness. And so that life is Jesus, right? Jesus comes, he lives the perfect life, he dies the death that we deserve, and so therefore God can look at us through Christ and we can be forgiven even though we don't deserve it. And so... um, The next part of the Christian life after embracing that truth is simply this, like we're supposed to deny ourselves and carry our cross. Jesus says, "Um, anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus has not called you or me or anyone else to be a king in this life. Any teaching that says that God is expected to make you healthy, keep you wealthy, give you a life free of suffering, that's from the father of lies. That's from the devil who says you can have all that you want right now without an ounce of suffering. And it's why Paul is so hard on them here. He's nasty to them. Um, now, here's the thing. Paul understands that his lot as an apostle, like being a, an apostle, is not um, 
It's not what everyone's gonna have to go through. He clearly says that apostles have been exhibited as last of all. And so he's not saying that every single Corinthian or, or all of us are gonna have to give up every single thing and die on a stage. But listen to what he says of himself and the other apostles. He says this, we are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak. We have bad reputations. And then to the Corinthians, he says, you know, It's amazing that somehow you've managed to use your Christianity to climb the social ladder, because that's not what we did. You've managed to make everyone think you're great, but everyone in the world thinks that I'm a fool, as as, as well as the other apostles. He's saying, great job, but you've completely missed the point. To this present hour, this is Paul continuing on, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So remember, Paul left a high-profile job as a respected and feared Jew, and he left that so that he could build tents during the day and get beat up at night for preaching the gospel. And so how is it that, that we can think with the example of Paul and the example of Christ that we are entitled to an, a life of ease when Jesus calls us to come and take up a cross and suffer for him? Um, verse 14 says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And now admonish means like a firm scolding. For although you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And so you might be thinking like, what is it that God wants for me? Well, let's look at a couple examples real fast. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what should I do to inherit eternal life? This is what he said. He said, give everything away, sell it to be able to give to the poor and come follow me. So it seems to me that like nothing is off the table here. It could be something very, very big for you, that there is a major change in your life that you might need to make. And you will only know that if you engage Jesus with this question. What is it that you would have me do with my life? Um, Another example, uh, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, he came to Jesus, and as far as we know, Jesus didn't tell him specifically, like, here's what you have to do. But basically what Zacchaeus said is, I'm gonna give away, like, half of what I own to the poor, and I'm gonna pay everybody back double um, of what I stole from them. And here's the thing, just being with Jesus, he had a response. We don't know that Jesus asked him to do that, but he had a response from sitting with Christ. And so that's the challenge, is what is it that God would have you do? And you need to understand that there's nothing off the table. It may be something big, it may be something small, and I'm not gonna begin to, to like, give you ideas because I want the spirit to work here and we're not gonna like have some list of things that we can judge one another by. But we need to be praying earnestly and thinking earnestly about our own hearts. Do, are there things that we're holding on to that we'd be unwilling to give? And if that's the case, we gotta address that. Um, one thing I failed to mention, when, when Jesus looked at the rich young ruler, when he first saw him, he said that he looked at him and he loved him. He didn't hate him because he was rich. He loved him and realized that the key to his happiness was him parting with all of those things that he held dear. 
and that by giving up everything that he held in a worldly sense, he would gain the world spiritually and he would get to know Jesus better. So the reality is, is whatever it is that we're called to give, it's not to make us suffer, although we're going to feel that way. It's to actually lead us into life. Um, last thing in, in verse 18. Paul says that some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And so, man, right here, he's just reiterating the fact that these guys think that they are philosophical geniuses. And so they're trying to like copy the orators of the day and they're, they're talking with one another in those kinds of terms and they're probably teaching in their local churches in those kinds of ways. And he's saying, look, all of that that you pride yourself in, it's powerless. It's completely powerless. What's powerful is when the Holy Spirit works. And so just a, ner- a, a, a note about what we do here at Redeemer, we, we tend to strip things down and make things I mean, pretty simple and basic. And the reason is, it's, it's that, is that we want to leave room for the Spirit to work and we don't want you to come here expecting a big show because we want God to move and we want to present the truth as clearly and as best as we know how and we are praying that God works in your life. So <clears throat> that's it for chapter four. Um, next week, things get even a little more like interesting. Um, the, the pride that they carry is... It's made them blind to very blatant sin. And so if you like Jersey Shore or shows like that, um, it's, it's a little bit along those lines. So um, super interesting. Anyway, um, so let's pray. The band will come up and, um, and then we'll, 